This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. And we've got a whole host of experts for you on the show today. We were speaking to Dr. Sarah Rasmi about what the red flags are that could lead to a divorce down the line. How accurately can the experts predict whether you make it or break it? I was asking how you can get children back in the kitchen and eating real food with a clinical nutritionist and, yes, crucially, a parent as well. Dr. Thraya was talking about financial abuse in relationships, just how prolific it is and some of the signs to look out for. And it's FIFA season, but what kind of stress is being a footballer put on your body? We asked Dr. Andrew Foggart, who had some advice for you five-a-siders too. And UBTs were in the studio giving us a masterclass of some of their favourite blends. Asking this hour, can divorce be predicted? Now, none of us go into marriage with the plan or expectation to get divorced. But what are some of the red flags that therapists and experts look out for to pretty accurately predict whether you're heading for divorce course? According to couples therapist, psychologist, Dr. Sarah Rasmi from Thrive Wellbeing Centre, Maybe it can. She's on hand now to unpick some of the evidence and the theories that have been, well, I have to say, overwhelmingly accurate. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I'm curious then, if you get a couple on the couch, how quickly and how accurately can you get, get, a, get a read on if they're going to, well, make it or break it? So I do have to say that it's not really something that I think about. When someone does come in, my main objectives are to kind of assess where they are and where they'd like to be and then formulating a plan from there. That being said, there are definitely certain red flags that are more likely to result in a separation and divorce than others. We're going to be unpicking those kind of one by one in just a few minutes. But I'm, I'm curious, and we've talked about this in all sorts of different health aspects before, you know, prevention being better than cure. In an ideal world, would you like to see couples coming to see you before they've even walked down the aisle? Absolutely. That can definitely be helpful because a lot of times people will go into a marriage or a long-term commitment not having had some very important conversations around their values, their life goals, and their dreams. And we do find that when people have a mismatch, or even if they start in the same place and end up in a different place, that they are more likely to have marital dissatisfaction and perhaps even divorce. So having those conversations early on is really helpful and sometimes it makes sense to do that in the context of couples therapy. Mm. Now we've all heard about the seven-year itch and I wondered if there are any times or I guess milestones in a relationship where perhaps problems do really take root and, and could very well end in the end. In the end. Um, what, what have you noticed in, in your years as a therapist where that can be particular pain points? So there's a few different studies that have looked at at what point in time, so the number of years that a couple has been married, as well as throughout the course of the year, when are people most likely to file for divorce? The seven-year itch is something that's quite well known, and, and data does support that. However, we know that the period in which a couple is least happy is usually the second year of marriage because they're coming down from that honeymoon high, mm-hmm. and reality is really setting in. And then the marital dissatisfaction will continue to creep up, 
usually bottoming bottoming out between four, five, and seven years, depending on which of the studies you look at. And one of the reasons that they believe that this is the case is because often at that point in time, there's a lot of transitions, including the transition to parenthood. Mm -hmm. I was just about to say, throw some kids in the mix, some worries about money, and uh, it's hard to find time for each other and, and certainly for romance. What about later in life, though? We're seeing the kind of a lot more kind of silver separators. You know, when, once older children have flown the nest and that moment of realisation of looking at each other and going, OK, I'm going to be with you for a few more decades now and I'm not sure if I'm on board with that. Yes, absolutely. What's really challenging is that, you know, in our 30s and our 40s, that's the time when careers are booming, people have their families, they're starting to care for their aging parents. So there's a lot of responsibilities. And that often means that time together as a couple is compromised. And if that happens, then sometimes we do end up growing apart. Mm -hmm. And then once those not distractions, but responsibilities are gone, we often feel disconnected, not only from our partner, but from ourselves. And at that point in time, some people think that it makes more sense and they'll be happier if they do it on their own. Um, Dr. Sarah Rasmi, you just mentioned that kind of times of the year when people file for divorce. What do we know in terms of trends throughout the calendar year? So this is based on data coming out of the U.S. And what we see over there is that Filing for divorce tends to peak between March and August, and the explanation that has been offered is quite interesting. It tends to happen after a holiday period. Obviously, the holidays can be really, really fun and exciting, but they can also be a period of great stress. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, many people who are struggling in their marriages and are contemplating divorce might want to enjoy that last you know, holiday season or summer holiday as a family before making that step. I immediately thought March, someone's had a disappointing Valentine's Day. Our expert of the hour is couples therapist, psychologist, Dr. Sarah Rasmi from Thrive Wellbeing Centre. We're going to go to the text line now, Dr. Sarah. Some, some really interesting messages on this. Um, more of a question from Dr. Jack saying, I've noticed on both a personal and professional level a dramatic increase in divorce or dissolution of relationships as a result of the COVID crisis. Was COVID simply the cause of being you know, people cooped up and together for a long period of time, or was it a confounding event exposing faulty relationship characteristics? What's your take on that, Dr. Sarah? My take is that COVID, and in particular the lockdown, really did two things for relationships. For people who had generally good communication and conflict resolution styles, it actually helped bring them together because they had the opportunity to spend more time than they normally would in the hustle and bustle of our lives. Whereas people who struggled with communication and had poorer conflict management and resolution skills were more likely to experience dissatisfaction. And then I think generally speaking, when we all got locked down, it really put a lot of things into perspective. So if you're having that experience at home and start to really think about who you are and what you want out of life, it can trigger taking that decision to move, move forward outside of the marriage. Really interesting. And, you know, I think a lot of people came out of that saying, do you know what, life's too short to be miserable and I'm not happy in this relationship or this job or in the city or, you know, all, all these big decisions absolutely. came off the back of that. I want to go to the text line. This is anonymous message and we, we absolutely welcome that if that's, if that's what you need in order to get the answers that you need or 
a bit of a plan. Um, no name saying, thank you for this. My husband and I have a toddler son who we both absolutely adore. No question about that. But my husband is decidedly awful and getting worse. He's ne- nearly always snappy, grumpy, moody, constantly brushes me off and I try to talk with him, make a connection, just have a hug or a kiss. Intimacy with him feels light years away. I feel at the bottom of his priority list, below our son, quite rightly, but also below our dog, who he bestows affection on. He runs his own business. I've asked him multiple times if he's worried about money, future income, and he swears he doesn't. He's just so hard to talk to, gets annoyed, short-tempered. He says it's the wrong time, makes an excuse. He's a very good dad to our son. Are we headed for divorce? I'm at my wit's end and I don't know what to do, feeling so, so alone. Thank you. I'm glad you're listening today and I'm glad it's Dr. Sarah Rasmi who's at the other end of the phone. Um, Dr. Sarah, one of the the things that this listener is describing is what the Gottmans identify as stonewalling, which is refusal to communicate and engage in conversation. Are you able to outline some of those, what the Gottmans call the four four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to relationships, which is really what we're talking about today, the accuracy of heading for divorce, and perhaps relate that to this question? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that we see in the Gottman describes is that couples will, rather than expressing what their need actually is in a positive way that will facilitate having that need met, will often engage in criticism. So that might look like, for example, saying, why don't you give me any attention? You're at work all day. You're doing this and that and the other thing. And I just want five minutes of your time which is, it's reasonable. Obviously, it's coming from a place of of, of frustration, but more than that, it's coming from a place of missing one's partner. Mm -hmm. So if we reframe it as a positive need and we say, I really miss you, when can we have an opportunity to sit down and talk? And you see, I also phrase it as a question so that it can be something that is collaborative rather than feeling like it's demanding because when we're already depleted, having yet another thing on our to-do list, even if it's something we used to enjoy, can be quite problematic. Mm -hmm. So criticism is one. We need to focus on expressing the need. The other one that we have is related. It's defensiveness. And that is usually in the form of denial or a counterattack. What do you mean I'm not giving you any attention? When's the last time you gave me attention? And then we end up in the cycle of just criticizing and uh, defending ourselves until it either blows up or we just stop talking, neither of which are good outcomes. So the way we counteract defensiveness is to take responsibility. So even if your partner comes and says, you never give me any attention, look for the kernel of truth. Say, you know what? You're right. I, I missed your phone calls today. I'm here now. You're not owning everything, that always or never statement that's being thrown at you, but you're acknowledging an element of truth to it. And immediately, you're going to disarm your partner, and there is more likelihood to have a productive conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, the third one is contempt. And according to the Gottmans, that is the worst one that we can see in the context of couples therapy. It's the biggest predictor of divorce. And it's like criticism, but it's It has a bite to it. So if we see partners that are constantly making fun of each other, rolling their eyes at one another, really belittling one another, very, very combative, Mm -hmm. that's really, really problematic. And the way we address that is very similar to what I outlined previously uh, in terms of how we manage criticism, expressing needs from a, a more positive perspective. And finally, the fourth horseman is stonewalling, as you mentioned. And that is when our partner just shuts down and doesn't want to engage. And one of the things that I have to explain to couples when I see them is that the person who stonewalls looks like they're cool, calm, and collected from the outside. 
They look like everything is fine and they're just not engaged and not interested. But on the inside, they're simmering. These people, however, who stonewall, the way that they manage feeling overwhelmed physiologically is to shut down rather than to explode. So if you notice that your partner is doing that, rather than trying to push them even further to express and connect in that moment, the best thing to do is to agree on giving each other a timeout with a fixed amount of time. Each person does something that kind of helps um, down-regulate them and then come back together to increase the odds of having a more productive conversation. That is so useful, Dr. Sarah. Thank you so, so much. For anyone that wants to explore this further, and that can just be for their own reading or indeed applying it to their own relationship, is there anything, any resources out there that you feel like can be a good starting point for getting a greater understanding of this topic? The Gottmans have a wonderful website, but that website is focused primarily on their method. That being said, their method is evidence-based. It has like 40 plus years of research and it has a lot of really great standardized tools that are practical that people can incorporate into their work. It's the method that I use, so I'm a little bit biased, um, but there's a lot of free resources on that website. Dr. Sarah Rasmi, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. I know you're incredibly busy right now, and if anyone does want the details of Thrive Wellbeing Centre, drop me a little message on 4001. Dr. Sarah, speak to you soon, I hope, and uh, take care. All the very best to you and the team. If you do want Dr. Sarah Rasmi's details, 4001, you can just say doctor, whatever you need. Um, be very happy to connect you. They've got a team over there at Thrive who work with you know from children teens couples individuals all the way through so please don't hesitate to get in touch It is your free clinic on the show this afternoon, your chance to get some expert advice and of course send any questions in. We're talking picky eating in kids in particular. Natalie M. Kuba is with us today. She is a clinical nutritionist, a health supportive chef, as she calls it. Natalie, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I really do appreciate it on a professional and a personal basis because I have got a picky eater at home who is, um, let's just say, not, not shy about, about telling me how she feels about my cooking or nanny's cooking. Um, and food, I think, for many parents is such an emotional topic. So you're here to help hold, hold our hand a little bit this afternoon. I'd love to hear, though, before we go to the text line and, and kind of get into some of my questions as well, a little bit about you, about your journey from culinary school to author to some of the advice you're offering now. Tell us about that. Uh, hi, Helen. I'm hi. absolutely delighted to be here well, and you. to meet you. Um, so, yeah, my journey to culinary school was not conventional. It didn't start out with me knowing that's exactly what I'm going to do. Like a lot of people, it was my health issues. So I was a vegetarian for 10 years, and I loved it. It was awesome. My health was great, except for the last three years or so, and it was less awesome. What happened? My health was just declining in ways that nobody could really explain, um, I had a sneaking suspicion that food had something to do with it because I went 10 years excluding this whole food group, but um, no one could help me. So I landed in culinary school at the Natural Gourmet Institute in New York City where they focus on food as medicine. Mm -hmm. So I kind of walked in with this sneaking suspicion and I left school completely awestruck and inspired by the power of food and cooking and what it, the role it plays in our health. Wow. Okay. So what were some of your big takeaways then? And did that then inform you to make changes in your own diet? Absolutely. It helped me go back to eating animal protein, which I really was hesitant to do. I so identified with being vegetarian. 
Um, but it really helped me do that. And then shortly after my internships in restaurants, I started working and cooking for clients who had cancer. And so they used food as one of the modalities to help them in their healing process. And this is where I saw a lot of magic happen. Well, that's exactly what my dad did, actually. Wow. The first time, um, you got to bear in mind, my dad isn't, you know, at that point, late 60s, quite a traditional northern man. (laughs) And he started doing a lot of reading around diet when he was um, diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. And at one point said to my mum, I mean, yes, there's chemo, but I think I'm going to eat to beat cancer. And my mum was like, how about we do both? <laughs> we can, we can yeah. go conventional, we can, but we can also look at, you know, look at he was having raw garlic, cauliflower, mm. turmeric, completely changed his diet. And I think that actually helped him feel a lot more empowered and positive going through that because it was something he could control. Does that make sense? A lot. Yeah, tons. And it's really important to have that level of empowerment when you're sick and everyone mm-hmm. tells you that you have none. Exactly. To give you some kind of agency over your, your own health and your own destiny. Exactly. And then you became mum. Tell us about the impact that's had because y- you are really focused on helping children realize their, their health potential and, and connect with food as well. Absolutely. So actually... Moving here had a lot to do with that. So shortly after culinary school, I became a mom. And uh, when she, when Claire was about 14 months old, we moved to the UAE. And getting to know moms and learning how to be a parent and an expat parent mm-hmm. as well. Um, a friend of mine, she asked me, she said, hey, Natalie, you know, would you like to teach cooking classes in her beautiful kitchen? And I said, of course. So I took Claire to the kitchen with me and we started teaching toddlers how to cook with their parents, with their caregivers. And it was, again, more magic. Um, it was phenomenal. And you saw changes very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, these very picky eaters becoming very brave and adventurous. And um, shortly after that, she said to me, we need a food hero. You should write a book. And she was probably joking, but I went ahead and I did it anyway. <laughs> Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Live in the studio. Natalie M. Carava. She is a clinical nutritionist, a health supportive chef, and a mum, which, I mean, and I don't want to insult any pediatric nutritionists listening who haven't got children, but I feel like, I feel like you haven't, you haven't had the full parental experience of that emotion of cooking for a child, having that food rejected, having that emotional battle. And you can come in with the best advice in the world, but I think unless you've had that heartache and stress and apathy at some point, you really need, I think, to be a parent to, to have some kind of skin in the game. Can you tell us a little bit about your own kids? Are they picky eaters? Um, of course they are. They're children. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> um, and it's funny because my husband and I joke, it's like if we fuse the two of them together, they would eat everything. Mm-hmm. But one eats certain things, the other one eats the other. They're generally very good eaters. I'm very grateful for that. But for sure, they will and will not eat, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is, depending on the day, of course. I mean, I just said to you off air, the issue we have with our youngest is she was an amazing eater. We called her Tabitha Jean, the eating machine for ages from being weaned up until she was about two. And it was around that two, maybe a little bit younger, that she started making making her feelings known. And we've actually had a message here. This is from Kay saying, hope you can help me. Very stressed out mummy here. Son is 18 months and for the last few months he won't eat anything apart from snacks, toast and chicken dippers. We'll have a banana at breakfast, but no other time. I have bought and made countless things, but he won't try anything. Waves his hand in the air, shouts no. His weight is fine, but he is starting to have tummy trouble from his diet. Um, I do give him some vitamins with his milk in the morning. I'm feeling really stuck. He just point blank refuses. Any ideas appreciated? 
Definitely don't engage in a war. <laughs> we will lose. Parents will lose that war. Kids um, are little humans, and they want their autonomy as well. They want their voices heard. And food is really the one place where they get to do that. Mm -hmm. All they have to do is close their mouth when they're infants or shout and scream when they're toddlers. Um, I think that the best thing to do is oftentimes bring them into the equation, bring them into the kitchen, go food shopping with them, let them see and touch and choose. Even at 18 months? Even at 18 months. Get them in there and start that process. And they will go through phases. All of a sudden, he'll change and go into eating things, and then he'll decide not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I think when it's and actually I'm going to read this message from Padilla because I think this is a really interesting one. Padilla saying um, he has an 18, I'm sorry, an eight-year-old daughter who's an extremely bad eater, saying I think she has a texture issue, and they're trying to decide how to handle it. Saying I've begged her to take a bite. Sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. What I don't like is how she expresses herself when she doesn't like food. Spits it out, says she doesn't like it, um, and is very rude. Um, usually I have let her express herself, accepted it, move on. Um, I prefer not to put pressure on her. Um, but what would you do? It's great to not put pressure, that's for sure, because, again, autonomy, right? And this is how I express myself. This is what the child is saying, even at eight. Um, certainly she may have a textural issue. So, again, get her involved and try different textures, right? So you can have raw carrots, you can have boiled carrots, you can have mashed carrots, and each one there's still carrots. But something might work for her that it won't for another child just mm -hmm. because of the texture there. As for her expression... I would say just just work with her. What do you like? How do we how how can we respond to something that we do like? Let's find something we like and just kind of bring that into the conversation. And usually with color, color works a lot with kids. Tell us a little bit, which brings us to your books. Um, what were the aim with the books? Can you tell us their titles and I guess what they're all about, Natalie? So Anis, Anis is my little uh, foodie hero. Um, Anis Loves Green Food is the first uh, book in the series. And it, uh, the idea started, like I said, from a friend and again, probably a joke, <laughs> but I loved it. And I thought how great it would be because I work with kids in color and we talk about the rainbow. And when kids are having particularly difficult days in not eating well, it's like, right, let's think about the rainbow. Did we have any red foods today? What what red foods do you like? What can we eat? Let's go to the fridge and see. You know, see. I'm going to say ketchup. <laughs> exactly. And then it's like, okay, what can we put it on? How about something orange? How about something green? And, you know, you just kind of, the patience of a saint, right? You need the patience of a, a saint. It's a full-time job, this. It's a full-time job. Really, really Double, is. even. Mm -hmm. I would agree. But what you've kind of woven there is this narrative that, you know, kids can connect with that character. But there's also some great recipe ideas and in introducing them to different foods. How have they, how have they been responded to? So it's really great. Uh, bringing the book into the classes that I teach um, helps the kids relate to that. And then we try new things. And it's like, well, she's trying new things. What are you going to try? Peer pressure helps in those, in those situations. I, I honestly think it does. I'll often put things in um, my younger one's lunchbox and I'm surprised that she eats it because, you know, she might be sitting next to a kid that has something similar. Or if they have like a, you know, sh thankfully now COVID times, they can share a bit more food. Mm. You know, if they're at a party to see or a table, seeing there's someone next to them trying something, you get them exchanging glances, being like, oh, OK, if you're doing it, then maybe exactly, maybe I'll do it. Exactly. Um, one last question. This is from Patsy saying, great timing. We're going away as a family on Monday. My four and a half year old is terribly picky. Go through phases of eating well, then almost nothing. She's been a bit sick this week, so is even more picky than usual. Um, curious how to navigate this on holiday when we're ordering food rather than cooking at home. Yeah, ordering food is really tricky, really tricky, especially because the sauces and texture and all of this stuff. And paying. <laughs> and paying for it all, exactly. Um, there it's going to be a lot of talking about it and really getting the, 
the child's input on it. They want to, the main thing is that they want to know that they chose it. They want to know that they were in charge of something and it wasn't just something put in front of them. Now go ahead and eat this. Right. They want to have that agency like you were talking about earlier. What about modeling um, in terms of what we can be doing as parents? Absolutely. Nothing can be better than that, actually. And that that also is a lot of the kitchen work. So it's coming in and doing it together as a family. And I'm eating this. You don't have to eat it the way I eat it. You don't have to eat exactly what I eat. But this is what we eat and value as a family. This is my this is my Christmas project to be eating more with the kids and to, as you say, get them in the kitchen. Never is going. Um, where can we find the book? Great question, Natalie. Over to you. Uh, right now, it's on Amazon. Um, the Green Book, I think, is still for sale at the Right Market shops. Actually, they picked it up awesome. and we're selling it here. I have not been as good with the Red Book yet, but it is. Uh, they're both available on Amazon. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing what sounds like really good common sense and I think we've all kind of moved away from that a little bit in our hectic lives so if we do get a bit of time over the holidays get back in the kitchen reconnect with our kids and I'll report back I'll see if a single Brussels sprout (laughs) is eaten over Christmas Natalie thank you really appreciate it if you want Natalie's details drop me a little line on 4001 It is your live clinic. Yesterday we talked tennis and paddle injuries. Today we are tackling football, pun well and truly intended. We have got Dr. Andrew Foggett joining us. He is consultant orthopaedic foot and ankle surgeon. And uh, Dr. Andrew, are you following the World Cup with a sporting interest but also a medical eye? I've kind of lost interest since the last uh, <laughs> arrived. Hey. I've been watching, been watching what's going on. So yes, I'm very interested in what's going on, but I- I think I'm probably going to be supporting Morocco from Me now on. Me too. Me too. The mighty Morocco. It's wonderful to see no, that. Uh, not, not using the F word anymore. Shh, don't you dare. Don't you dare. No, so how no, are you no. today? Very well indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Absolute pleasure. I find this really interesting because I'm in my 40s now and there seems to be a demographic of guys, oh, thanks, of guys in their late 30s, 40s who are like, do you know what? I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm going to take up five-a-side football again. And next thing yep. you know... We've got some injuries. So before we talk injuries, um, I want to talk, I guess, benefits of football. Professional, you know, these guys are running crazy distances, yeah. but, but recreational. Yeah. What, what are some of the, the upsides of incorporating into your, your sporting life? Well, surely any exercise at any time has got to be good for you. I'd much rather folk actually run around. Uh, it sounds a bit macabre, but I'd rather folk run around and actually have the odd injury than sat in front of a TV or a computer all day. Yeah, it makes total anything, sense. And anything that gets your heart going and gets you puffing has got to be good for you. Um, you know, it's very important. I think I said before, you've got to make sure you warm up and you warm down. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, get out there and do something. Don't just sit inside all the time. So- um, I, know, I know it's very hard here in Dubai because it's very hot in the summer, but... You can find something to do inside in an inside gym or an inside swimming pool, for example. Mm-hmm. It is true. It is true. In football, you know, obviously it's very topical right now, but I think it also brings back a lot of nostalgia, you know, jumpers for goalposts and, you know, having that Absolutely, sense of yeah. making friends and having, having a laugh, almost in exercising without thinking about it. But let's talk injuries. What's coming to you at Bajil? Well, I look after purely foot and ankle surgery, so I don't um, come anywhere f- uh, further up the leg than the middle of the shin. So I see all the broken foot bones and the ankle sprains uh, and the sport- footballers' sports-type ankle injuries and so on. Those are, that's my sort of 
bread and butter um, medicine here at the jail. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the text line. Message from Ross. <laughs> I think Ross is absolutely bang on the demographic we were just talking about, saying two weeks ago, I played, I played five-a-side for the first time in 13 years, and I played like I was 13 years younger, which was a mistake. When the adrenaline wore off, the pain didn't. I went to the doctor, found two crack ribs, leading to two weeks of pain okay. and no exercise. I'm less fit than okay. when I started, but it was great fun. So let's talk sensible precautions then for getting into football after a long time or uh, for the first time. What do people need to know in terms of protecting themselves for finding themselves with you? Well, you should do you should do all the things about stretching and warming up, but that's really really boring, and I've never been very good at that either. <laughs> Thank you for um, that. You know, like like, every, like everyone else, you, you get you get on the pitch and the red mist descends, and you just want to get out there and run around. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, broken ribs are very unlucky, unfortunately, but the, the the normal the normal injuries, there's not a great deal you can do about them. I don't think, by and large, as long as you've got a sensible set of uh, shoes on your feet or boots on your feet. Uh, and you don't get too too dizzy. I think uh, get on with it, frankly. Well, what about if there is an injury? And we'll we'll talk about your specialty, which, as you say, is yeah, south yeah, of the yeah, shin. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know what? Um, what can we do to help heal better? Um, I'm guessing not putting on those boots and getting out after two weeks, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the problems is we we live in a sort of an instant culture, um, and that applies to almost all aspects of our life, including recovery from sport. Um, and there's a belief, unfortunately, that you have an injury today, you'll be back to normal by Sunday tea time, and it just doesn't happen like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the problem is Mother Nature heals things at a sort of fairly fixed rate, and it's common for patients to say to me, oh, Doc, I'm a, I'm a good healer. I'm sure you are, but that you don't heal any faster than anyone else, and it's being prepared to back off and give things time to settle. And certainly in my sphere, I mean, I've just this afternoon, I've seen someone came in this afternoon who'd uh, broken his, uh, not broken his ankle, he sprained his ankle playing football yesterday. Hugely swollen ankle, but nothing broken on the x-ray. But I still put him in plaster to rest the soft tissues mm-hmm. and enforce that rest. So I think the answer is come and see a physiotherapist. Come and see me if you're worried and you want me to have a look at you. But I think the idea is to be prepared to back off for more than just two or three days. Start off with two or three weeks and then go gently after that, I think. Now, I know this is um, not perhaps your area, but uh, what, mm. what do we know about the research in terms of heading, you know, footballs as a professional? And we've seen this in other sports as well, you know, terrible yeah, concussions right. coming, coming out of rugby. Yeah. Um, what, what do you say to anyone mm. who's, uh, who's got a child or a teen who is, is really passionate about the sport and you ultimately want to keep them safe? Of course, yes. I, your, your heading in football is very topical at the moment. Um, just uh, two or three weeks ago, the Scottish Football Association apparently banned heading uh, in football as uh, one day either side of a match from now on. Um, so that's quite, a, that's quite a sort of um, restriction on them mm-hmm. and, a, and, and very much an acknowledgement of the, the fact there is a, there is a problem. Um, the, the Daily Mail recently published an article saying footballers heading 80-mile-an-hour footballs. That's pretty, pretty frightening if that's true, 80 miles an hour. The but, yeah, I mean, if, if, a, a, proper, a proper leather football coming at speed is, is, is not a small... It's not a lightweight, so mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, I find this, this discussion fascinating but really difficult because if you stop people heading football for fear, footballs for fear of hurting their head, do you stop people rock climbing for fear of falling down off a rock cliff? And where, where do you draw the line? Exactly. You, you need think, to put some responsibility you know, in the hands of the it, people. It, it, it is, and, 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 and 
like everything else in life, it's moderation. But where, where is that line of moderation for heading a heavy football? Yeah. I don't pretend to know the answer to that one. And I think there's quite a long way to go on that. Um, Dr. Andrew, Lee's just been in touch saying he needs a second opinion on his, um, on his ankle. Um, and where yeah. can you be found? So you are there at Bajil. Which I'm location are you at? We're just off the Sheikh Zayed Road where it crosses or is crossed by Almanara Street. Got you. Um, Dr. Andrew, thank you so much. No, no, I've just run out of time, but I just want to say if anyone does want your details, I have them in front of me. I can happily ping them over if anyone just wants to say doctor on 4001. Dr. Andrew, we'd love to have you back, have a a chat about uh, about other sports, other issues, and um, some some of the things that you've been tackling in clinic there at Bajil. In the meantime, though, wishing you happy holidays, and yeah, Yeah. we'll say it quietly. Very much the same to you. Thank you very much. Come on, Morocco. (laughs) Dr. Andrew, (laughs) speaking to us, consultant orthopaedic foot and ankle surgeon if you do want his details just drop me a message i'd be very happy to them. this content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment Joining us between now and five, Dr. Thryer from the Human Relations Clinic and Institute. She's a clinical psychologist. And when most people think of domestic abuse, the first thing that comes to mind is likely verbal abuse, physical assault even. But research shows that financial abuse occurs just as frequently in unhealthy relationships as a form of abuse. In fact, a study um, in the US at the Centers for Financial Security found that 99% of domestic violence cases also involved financial abuse. So what constitutes that term? What do you need to know? Um, and ultimately, how can you deal with it? Dr. Rai, thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate your insights on a topic that I'm seeing more and more and more um, in news and then also tragically coming up on message boards even here in the UAE. So I'd love to start by getting a bit of a definition of what you see um, either coming to clinic or what you've seen from peer research about what constitutes financial abuse. Well, basically, financial abuse is is a type of um, gaining power and control over the other person that you're with by keeping the person trapped in this abusive relationship. And that involves things like withholding money, controlling all the household spending, but also um, having limited knowledge to the financial situation of the household itself. So basically, it's it's the way the abuser... Um, gains control and maintains control Mm -hmm. over the other partner through financial means. So money, as you say, is used as a tool for manipulation. So it can be, as you're saying, um, withholding information. So someone not being aware of family finances, bills, debts, income, spending, bonuses, all all that kind of things are being kept in the dark. What about stopping someone from working or sabotaging a career? Absolutely. I mean, basically, it's not just, you know, withholding information, but uh, not allowing them to work, sabotaging their their relationship with work as well, uh, concern, uh, controlling their their purchases or or their even their access to the money itself. So basically not allowing them to have access to either a joint account or to a single account. Um, and, and, and this also could involve things like making sure that the the person kind of signs off things on their name and then putting them into debt and so much so that the person can't leave because if they do leave, then there's no way to recover that debt. And so there are so many different ways that a person can financially abuse another. But in essence, it's really about kind of um, making sure that you're kind of harming, depriving and, and disadvantaging your partner through financial means. 
And I think what I find so heartbreaking about this is when money is used as a tool of manipulation is that you, and I'm certainly not saying it's women um, versus men or, you know, it's more common on either side because I don't know, but people being unhappy in a relationship and not having the financial means to leave it. Um, and right. not having financial independence, not having confidence, their own ability to earn money. Um, mm. And then, as I said, feeling completely trapped. Is this something you've seen either coming into clinic or you're hearing about in the industry? Absolutely. I mean, one of the strongest reasons why a person stays in an abusive relationship is due to financial reasons. So essentially, this is the the surefire way to keep a person staying in, a, in an abusive relationship because they don't have the means to, to leave the relationship or to even sustain and take care of themselves, especially if they have kids. So mm-hmm. if they have kids, it places even a, a, a bigger financial burden on them. So it makes it harder for them to leave. So the financial abuse piece is a significant uh, contributing factor to the maintenance of the abusive relationship. Dr. Thurai is with us this afternoon, clinical psychologist. If you've got any questions, comments on this topic, by all means do get in touch and you can, of course, be completely anonymous on 4001. You've got the ARN Play app under WhatsApp too. Now, Thurai, just let me be super clear and almost playing devil's advocate here. If someone is genuinely happy for their spouse to take care of finances and to be you know, CFO of the household, it's, it's not automatically abuse or manipulative. Sometimes it is just an agreement that a couple will enter into, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, if it's, if it's an agreed upon thing, then that's fine. However, we just need to be careful on how that works as well, because some people are very good at manipulating the other partner into like, you know what, you don't have to worry about this stuff. Like, I'll take care of it myself. And that is their form of, of uh, financial abuse. Because no matter what, when you are in a relationship, you must have access and Uh, transparency to the finances of the household. So if you don't have access and transparency, that in and of itself is already problematic. This is not to say that you're not involved. So if you don't want to be involved in paying the bills and so on and so forth, then that becomes something that the both of you are talking about. But instead of it being a unilateral decision that, listen, I'll take care of everything, don't worry about anything. And on top of that, for you not to have any visibility on what's happening with the finances, because financial abuse is not just about limiting money from the person themselves, but it's also about taking whatever money exists and using it without the knowledge or the consent of the partner. Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist, joining us this hour. And we're discussing financial abuse. Domestic abuse is so much more than physical harm. In many cases, financial abuse hurts victims by stripping away their control over their money, destroying their financial health. But it's very rarely discussed. It does go hand in hand with domestic violence. Now, this is an old study. This is from 2011. Uh, The Centre for Financial Security found that women who'd suffered domestic violence, 99% of them also reported economic abuse. This is defined as a partner taking control of significant others' ability to acquire, use and maintain economic resources. And apparently during COVID... Uh, reported cases jumped 8%. Perfect storm of a recession, widespread job loss and families being forced to stay at home increased the risk factors. And we've had a number of you sharing your experiences and also sharing some questions as well. Anonymous message here saying, my wife is the Chancellor of the Exchequer in our household. I happily go down the mines each day and she gives me pocket money. I love it. I can't balance a checkbook so we play to our strengths. But she was in a financially abusive relationship previous to me. So it took her a long time to trust the fact that I trust her to look after the finances. And Dr. Thurai, a question here, Anonymous, saying a close friend has recently found out her husband 
has built up 400,000 dirhams worth of debt. He won't admit how it happens, but she's guessing gambling. From discussions with her, they've had problems for a few years, but it's all come to light and they're at crisis point. They're likely to lose their home. They've got two kids, they're married, but for some reason the house is only in his name. Any advice I can offer her? So sorry your friend's going through this. Thiraya, what what would you advise in terms of a, a role that a friend can play in this situation? Well, I think in that situation, you know, just being supportive and trying to help in any way that you can emotionally could be very helpful. Um, in reality, this is definitely something that a financial advisor would be best to answer such questions because there are so many different payment plans that can be um, uh, accessible to individuals who are in a lot of debt for whatever reason. So I think, you know, just as a friend, it's good to be there, allow her to, to, to talk and to, to express how she's feeling, what she's going through. And, you know, support here and there but at the same time you want to be careful because you don't want to overstep you don't want to make the person feel bad or that you're pitying them or that or any kind of condescending um uh, tendency towards how they're experiencing what they're experiencing so i think the best thing to do as a friend is just to be there uh in emotional support um it's really interesting some very um big names lending their voice to this um this issue, including Serena Williams, who wanted to bring awareness after one of her close friends experienced it. Here she is. I had no idea what financial abuse was when I read that 99% of domestic violent cases do involve financial abuse. I felt like that was a really, really high number, and it's shocking. A close friend of mine was going through a situation that wasn't really healthy for her, it wasn't healthy for her friends or her family, and it was difficult to tell her. And then I realized, like, oh my goodness, she's all, all the signs that I was learning about um, with financial abuse she was involved in. It was really intense. I feel like a responsibility to make um, people know more about things like financial abuse and how to avoid it. Like, I want to teach my daughter everything about it. And if I have more kids and if I happen to have a boy, I want to teach him about it. So he is not a part of the problem and only adds to the solutions. Serena Williams speaking there on our topic of the hour. Bit of a trigger warning. We are talking about domestic abuse today with a particular look at financial abuse. We, we do often think about verbal and physical assault, but financial abuse is far more prolific than you might realise and can be so, so damaging. Clinical psychologist Dr. Thraya from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic is joining us to unpack this and guide us and answer your questions. And you can get in touch, of course, 4001. Use your ARN Play app. You've got the WhatsApp as well. You don't need to put your name on if you'd rather not. I completely, completely understand. Um, we've had a message here, Thiraya, um, saying, um, how about um, financial abuse in a family? Uh, listener saying, I'm 35, two kids, good job, married, have my own car. But anytime I make a life choice or purchase, I feel so anxious to tell my parents. We bought a sofa last month and I was terrified of their reaction because they always respond th- with things like, how did you pay for it? What a stupid choice. We've just fostered a dog and I haven't told them yet because I already know they're going to call me stupid and say it's a waste of money and don't come crying to me when you have a vet bill, even though I do not rely on them financially. Surely this isn't normal. I feel like I can't shake off the anxiety every time I make a big change or purchase without telling them as I know they'll call me stupid. That's from Anonymous on the text line. Through financial abuse, we're talking about domestic abuse and we often make that leap about it being in a romantic or a marital relationship. But what about in a family? What about between generations? 
Of course. I mean, financial abuse can definitely occur uh, intergenerationally. So uh, this could happen with parents. They can tell their kids, like, if you don't do what I want or if you don't behave, I won't let you go to school. I won't pay for your continuing education and so on and so forth. And definitely it could it could be used as a form of emotional manipulation, especially mm-hmm. as a person gets older. The parents know that they no longer have control, and especially when they know that they no longer have control if the person's becoming financially independent. So now they'll start using it almost as a way to um, to, ha- to, to kind of a- include the emotional abuse as well. And so when somebody's calling you stupid for the decisions that you're making, even though you're the one who's working really hard to get the money, and then you get to make the decisions on how you spend the money, um, what I would what I would suggest is, is something I probably overkill with when it comes to me is I talk about boundaries quite a bit. And I think this is extremely important. I usually tell people, I mean, what is the purpose of you telling your parents the things that you purchase? I mean, yes, they're going to eventually see it. And when they see it, you can just, you know, casually mention, yeah, we bought it a while back. And if they ask you how much it costs, you can say it really doesn't matter how much it costed. It was something that we wanted and we got it. And so just allowing that to to, to start Um, developing these boundaries between you and your parents so that they no longer use it as a way to manipulate you into feeling bad or not doing exactly what they wanted. And that can definitely occur within generation as well. Can we come back to marriages? As we mentioned earlier, you know, not having financial means to leave a relationship is often one of the reasons why someone remains trapped in a unhappy and tragically abusive relationship. We've got a message here saying, women, have your own money. And if you don't and you're planning to leave, start making plans with paperwork before you take that decision. Um, I think that, as as you said earlier, you know, working with an expert to make sure you are in a financially independent place, um, Mm -hmm. subtly, if you need to, is so, so crucial. So what can you do if you experience financial abuse? So start taking some control back, Thraya. And I'm not talking about necessarily leaving a relationship, although, of course, it's it's what you want to do, then go down that path. But trying to get some of your control back, um, starting to assert yourself. um, What would some of the steps be that you would advise someone who comes into clinic with this issue? Well, one of the first things that I say is that your safety is the most important thing. So it's really important to do this in a very conspicuous way, in a very subtle way, so that the person is not put in harm's way as well. Because as we do know, financial abuse at times can come hand in hand with physical abuse as well as emotional abuse. And so it's important to make sure that the person is safe. So essentially what you want to be doing is you want to start putting in um, like creating a safety plan and putting in some some money on the side try to you know build a little bit of a, of a nest that you can then use in order to exit safely uh, sometimes it's really good to use friends and family that would like hold the money for you so that it's not found at the house and, and quite a big amount and so on and so forth but definitely start looking into ways that you can have more visibility and access to the money that you have at the house so uh quietly subtly and also um safely and the reason why i mention this is because a lot of as i mentioned a lot of financial abuse relationships come with physical abuse so a person has to be very careful Mm -hmm. if financial abuse is there without physical abuse it's important to kind of uh start bringing bringing up you know um visibility transparency bring it up from a perspective of you know i'd really like to start helping around in the house i notice that you do quite a bit so i think it's really important for me to be involved to take the load off of what you're what you're already responsible 
for. So in a, it, it sounds like a manipulation, but at the same time, it is a way to kind of secure your own safety plan to exit the relationship, especially if it is an abusive one. Um, and I, I just come back to the relationship um, of parents. Really interesting point here from Joanne saying, um, my late mother always threatened to write me out of her will whenever I didn't do what she wanted. And isn't that interesting to think that this that power struggle just uh, just just keeps on going. What about financial abuse even after divorce? Is that something that you've seen? You're still trying to control a partner and even the children once a marriage is dissolved? Sure. I mean, really, in reality, when the, when a divorce happens, the only control that one partner has over the other partner is the financial control. So essentially what they'll do is either they'll threaten not to pay the bills, they'll threaten not to send the kids to school, or they will give them such a minimal amount that it's hardly even... Um, like the person's hardly even able to survive on it. Mm -hmm. So this can be very detrimental, but it happens quite a bit. This is why it's really important when you're going through a divorce to definitely get a lawyer and have somebody that you can, that can help you through it and, and discuss your options because there, there are a lot of legal um, and, uh, and federal laws that are, that protect people here. So, and this goes on both ends. This is not just for the female, but also for the male. So it's important to, to know, your rights as a as an individual and to go through the proper channels in order to make sure that the financial means that you get after the divorce mm -hmm. is something that can can be beneficial for both you and the children as well. And I think lastly, I don't think it can be underestimated the emotional impact this must have on somebody, someone who might have been stopped from working, who's been told that they don't and can't have their own money. And, you know, working with someone to help you rebuild that self-esteem, rebuild that confidence so you can start life afresh, emotionally and financially independent. Dr. I thank you so much for your time on this. I think it's such an important topic and one that definitely needs more awareness. So I really thank you for um, for being with us for this last hour. And if you do want Dr. Rai's details, 4001. Dr. Rai, have a lovely day ahead. Really do you appreciate too. your time. Um, as I said, Dr. Thry there, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. If you want her details, drop me a little message on 4001. Just say Dr. T. So what will be in store for the winner of that exclusive tea masterclass? Explain a little bit more from New Beauties Middle East. Sanya Muller is in the studio with some little cloches of some beautiful tea blends that we're going to be smelling and exploring. But before we get to that, Sanya, can you explain a little bit about Newbie Teas? Because it is the most highly awarded luxury tea brand in the world, which is wonderful. But in terms of taste and history, what do we need to know as consumers? Hello, Helen. How are you? Okay, thank you. Uh, well, yes, uh, rightly said, Newbie is the world's most awarded luxury tea brand. And um, one of our missions, it's very clear that we want to reintroduce fine quality tea and we want to revive the world's love for it. It's very, uh, it's very important if you look back in history, tea actually had great provenance mm -hmm. and it was always considered a gift for the royals. And tea has, you know, caused wars and moved borders and people have actually gone colonizing countries because that's the kind of value tea had mm -hmm. in history. So as a brand, we came into ex existence in the wake of the millennium in the year 2000 in London. But we're very blessed and we've been growing. We're almost in over 12 countries around the globe. Um, and also one important thing that I would like to highlight is 
the sole uh, the, the largest benefactor of newbies is actually a british registered charity called nsatia foundation wow. so we heavily invest in projects related to education medical research so our core mission along with reviving the tea culture is also to serve our community I love this serving for good. Um, I, I love the idea of bringing back that that ritual of tea drinking and having that being a moment of connection between people and exploration of taste, which is exactly what this prize is going to be. Um, and tea's having a bit of a moment, really, when we think about so many more of us being health conscious. And tea's got incredible health benefits. You know, everything from reducing stress. I've heard about you know being affected with diabetes, antioxidants as well. Of course, what are some of the most popular tea blends that you're having with consumers here in Dubai? And what are their kind of home setups like when it comes to their tea experiences? So in the Middle East, definitely, I've seen people really, really appreciate some sort of floral teas. So jasmine tea is a big favorite. Persian rose is a very popular tea. We also have black teas, which uh, are kind of synonymous with the culture here. Um, classic English breakfast. Or if you're looking for something really robust and strong, then Assam tea is, um, you know, a hot favorite. What's your favorite? Oh, well, mine's jasmine. I it's love jasmine fun. tea. <laughs> now, here's the question, and this has caused, you're talking about tea causing wars and moving borders. There's many an argument, especially, I would say, in a British household about how to brew the perfect cup. I mean, my goodness, you've had people stropping out of kitchens and throwing tea bags in the <laughs> bin and how dare she put the tea in and then the milk or the milk first and then the tea. All of this. Now, you brought in today a beautiful selection of tea. You even brought your own kettle in, which is temperature controlled. Can you give us some tips and advice for creating a really beautiful cup of tea at home that really does justice to the leaves that you're working with? So enjoying fine tea is a very immersive experience. You really need to invoke your senses. And it's something that you brew with a lot of love and care. Um, But just to make it easy for your listeners and, you know, some quick tips... It's very important to use freshly boiled water. Don't use water which has been reboiled and reused. Um, also, please use the right amount of tea leaves. Uh, for 250 ml uh, or 200 ml, two grams of tea leaves are more than enough. If you're going to use a lot of tea, you're going to make it very concentrated. Do you have loose loose tea and tea bags to make it even easier? Yes. Okay, good. So, Just in case anyone's there with a scale. <laughs> yes. So for the people who want to play safe and still enjoy the best character and the taste for the tea, we have pyramids, which are actually our loose teas packed in sachet forms. So that's a very interesting and easy way to enjoy fine tea. Okay, so are we using a teapot? Are we putting bag and cup directly? Are you warming the teapots? Sonia, there's a whole host of questions that I can hear my Irish mother asking me right now. So if you're using a pyramid or a tea bag, you're directly adding it to your cup. And obviously, all our packaging comes with very precise brewing instructions. So if it says two to three minutes at 80 degrees or 100 degrees, uh, please pull it. Please remove the tea bag once it's brewed and ready. Uh, if you're doing loose leaf teas, it's definitely an indulgence and it's more elegant. And you're going to use a nice glass teapot or a porcelain teapot. You're going to use the right amount of tea leaves. And you're going to let it brew according to a timer. Uh, Once you're done, you're going to strain your tea and you're going to remove the tea leaves so that you don't overbrew. Okay. And then you can enjoy. I think it's time to have a little sample. We can't drink in the studio, but we have bought some lovely glass cloches with some of your favourites. We're going to start with... 
This is the, an oriental blend. Can you tell us a little bit about what I've got in front of me? I'm so going to have a little you, smell while you're talking. So what you're looking at uh, right now is actually an oriental censure. So if you notice, it has a very tropical, fruity fragrance. It's really fruity. And when I look at it, you've got, um, I can see some blue in here. I've got some pink, some green. So it does feel and look very tropical. Yes. So it has corn flour. And it actually is infused with the fragrance of mango and papaya. Ooh, I love it, actually, because I'm more of a fruity, a fruity person, so to speak. Right. Okay. And how would you brew this one? This is no milk, no sugar needed. The tea is flavoured to perfection. So this is something very important one must know, that if you are drinking fine quality tea, you really don't need any milk or sugar, and it's just good as it is. And if you had to brew this tea, it's delicate, so an 80-degree temperature would be right, and you could brew it for three to four minutes. Okay, Sanya, tea number two. I'm, I'm going to bet my bottom dirham that this has got some rose in it. Yes, so this is a Persian rose tea. Uh, it's a herbal tisane. It's caffeine-free. It's great for kids. It's great for pregnant mums who don't want to have caffeine during this period of time. Um, and these rosebuds actually come all the way from Iran. And they're hand-picked and they're very delicate. They're beautiful so, as well. Really beautiful. I love this idea about no caffeine tea because that is a big concern for an awful lot of people. I mean, I personally welcome caffeine frequently. Um, but to be able to enjoy something without worry must be... And have that Middle Eastern aspect. Is this a popular one in this part of the world? Yes, definitely. It's, a, it's one of our favourites amongst a lot of um, local residents. This must be a lovely gift as well, I would imagine. You know, at this time of year, a lot of people giving chocolate. Giving tea must be a nice alternative. Yes, definitely. I, I remember like on festive seasons receiving several boxes of sweets and chocolates and not knowing what to do with them. <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes I would share with family and friends and I'm sure many other people around the city go through the same. Uh, tea actually is healthy. It has a longer shelf life. It's great if you want to send gifts back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they don't really get damaged during transit because all our caddies are packed and all our teas are packed in caddies, which actually preserve their freshness. So that's something, I mean, it's a great alternative. Sonia Mother, tea number three. I have no guesses for this. My, my tea nose palette is, is not working. What's going on? Uh, so these are jasmine pearls. Oh, really? And what's very... This is your favorite. Yes, this is my favorite. And I'll tell you why. Because tea is a porous leaf. So what we do is we actually, le- you know, roll out the leaves and then we lay fresh jasmine flowers on them. And the leaf actually absorbs the fragrance from the flower. Oh, and then it's hand rolled into pearls, which actually is called jasmine pearls. Some of the teas you brought in earlier were flowers that seemed to bloom in the water. There was a lychee flavoured one that really kind of captured my imagination. So I love the idea of watching something unfurl and the colours you know, bleeding out into the water. And like having a mindful moment, I guess, rather than just being, all right, quick, chuck a cup of coffee down my neck. Let's just have a moment of peace. <laughs> And really enjoy and taste. So this is your favourite. And what is tea number four? So tea number four is great for the festive season. It's called the apple strudel tea. <gasps> it's this is uh, my favourite. <laughs> it smells amazing. It actually has um, some figs and cinnamon and pieces of dried apple. And it's just it's just a warm, fuzzy feeling drinking the apple strudel tea around this oh, time of the year. This smells absolutely incredible. It, it, it smells exactly like that, like like a spicy apple pie. Oh, Sonia, thank you so much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think it's really helpful as well for everyone to hear what is in store should thank they win this amazing prize. Thank you.
Thank really, you. really great. And as I said, if anyone wants to go down, the boutique is there. The new petite boutique is at the Park Hyatt Dubai. The staff there are incredibly well informed, can really guide you in that shopping experience. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.